It's a joy to be with you. Uh, Want to just name things. It's healthy to name reality. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But um, I know that there are many of you in the room who don't love uh, the, the mask requirement that we put in place this week. Uh, and I, I just want to acknowledge, say, hey, the fact that you're here, uh, thank you. Thank you for, uh, even though it's not what you would choose, um, thanks for trusting the leadership here uh, that made this decision. Um, and, and, and I just want to say, um, this is, this is part of what makes the church so unique is that this is not a homogenous group of people. Like we, we come from all over the spectrum, not just politically, but from our life experiences, from our socioeconomic level to, to like how we view the world. And only because of the gospel of Jesus can we come in and hear and say, Hey, we may disagree on a few other things. Uh, we're going to agree in the Lord and we want to be together to worship. And so thank you. Um, it means a lot. I know that, um, my inbox is full from replies, uh, to the email, uh, that went out this week. Um, and my assistant will be getting back to you shortly. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a joy and we really do believe, uh, you can, you can disagree with this. You can challenge it. We really believe here in submission to the Lord. This is, this is the best way to love our city and to, uh, and to welcome people into our space, uh, at least for this little season. So thank you, um, for being here. Um, so, uh, if you're joining us, uh, afresh this morning or haven't been with us the last few weeks, we are, uh, walking through the book of Nehemiah this fall. Uh, it's a lesser known book in the Old Testament. It is the last historical thing to happen to the Israelites, uh, before the coming of Jesus. There's about 450 years after Nehemiah before the birth of Jesus, but it is the last historical thing to happen to the people of God in the Old Testament. So it kind of gets left off at the end. It's kind of get, you know, doesn't get a whole lot of time, a whole lot of airtime, and it's been uh, joyful to get to walk through it these last couple of weeks. But here's the scenario. Here's the setup. Here's the context. The Israelites are in captivity in, in what was Babylon, but is now the Persian Empire. They're in captivity. A group of them has gone back to begun to rebuild the temple. They got permission from the king. That work gets stopped. That work gets ceased. And the rebuilding of the temple and the walls are essentially not just halted, but the walls of Jerusalem, uh, the rebuilding of God's city, are burned to the ground and it's destroyed again. Nehemiah, this infamous cupbearer to the king in the Persian Empire, gets in his heart that I need to go and rejoin the mission, rejoin the vision that God has of restoring Jerusalem, restoring the city of God. And it's my role, the burden that God's put in my life is to go back home with a troop, with a group of people and say, it's time for us to rebuild God's city. So that's what Nehemiah's grand story is, but it's not just Nehemiah joining in to go rebuild God's city. It's Nehemiah joining in to rebuild God's vision for the entire world. And here's what that means. Here's how that makes sense. Nehemiah going back to rebuild the city of God reignites, it, it recapitulates, it re, it re-sparks the belief that God has not given up on the world. That if the city of God is restored, maybe all of God's promises to one day mend the entire world, maybe those are true too. And so Nehemiah is joining this little part of the story to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but it's a part of this huge narrative where God says, I've actually come to rebuild the entire world and to restore the entire world. And you rebuilding Jerusalem is just a little part of that. So it's Nehemiah joining in his space and time, the grand vision of God in the world. So here's what's happened. Nehemiah has heard the news from Jerusalem that the home front is not good. The walls have been burned down. I've got to go. He spends four months in prayer asking the Lord, what is he to do and how is he to do it? 
And then he goes before the king, King Artaxerxes, Zerk, as Daryl calls him, Zerk, uh, and, and says, hey, uh, King Artaxerxes, I know I'm your most trusted man in the empire, your cupbearer. I know that I'm your chief of staff. I need about 12 years off to go back home and do this task. Artaxerxes not just grants him the, the, the PTO. Artaxerxes grants him the wood that it will take to rebuild the walls, the gold that it will take, and he sends him with the king's stamp, the king's approval that says, when you travel across the known world and you travel across my kingdom, you show people this document that says, you're here on my uh, release. You have my blessing to go be here. So Nehemiah has the papers and he heads for Jerusalem. It's kind of where like, okay, now we're like, we're getting into the story. This is when he's going to head back. And the rest of the chat, the rest of the book essentially will be him in Jerusalem and what the story looks like from there. So this is Nehemiah chapter two, starting in verse nine. It says, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and yet I had not told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were, who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. It's the word of the Lord. So Nehemiah has these papers from the king. He travels across the known world, across the Persian empire, which was the greatest superpower in the world at the time. And he sets out to restore Jerusalem. He crosses the Euphrates River that's the beyond the great river that's there. And he arrives at the, the gate, at the torn down gate, at the city, at the, at the area of Jerusalem, Judah and the surrounding kind of county. And when he gets there, there's these enemies of the Jews, Sambalot and Tobiah. And we'll hear from them a lot. We'll see what role they play in their, their criticism of the, of the process. But essentially who they are is they were kind of these, they had risen up to like local power. They were, they were, um, you know, assistant to the regional manager, so to speak. Like they didn't really have a whole lot of power, but they did. They, they inflicted a lot of pain. They were the governors of that little region, even if they weren't necessarily, um, ordained or orchestrated by King Artaxerxes, they still had kind of risen into power. We're in charge over here. 
This is our area. This is our domain. We don't like the thought of this Jerusalem being restored. That will kind of disrupt what we're trying to do in this area, kind of in the shadows of the kingdom. And so they face this opposition. They face this taunting. And Nehemiah um, goes to set up camp with his team. And what he does is, is he kind of leaves his camp outside the city. And then for three days, he goes and he begins inspecting the walls of Jerusalem. That's the largest chunk of our passage. Is he's talking about what those, those like the dung gate and the dragon gate and, the, and all these places that he's going to. Those were very well-known pieces of the wall of Jerusalem that used to be in its glory. And so Nehemiah is going and he's inspecting it and he's seeing the destruction. He's seeing these walls that have been burned down. He's surveying the land. He's setting out the project list that it will take to rebuild this glorious city of God. These walls, he must know what lies before him in order. What work is to be done? Like, does it just need to touch up over here at the gate? Or no, what he finds out is the whole thing needs work. And he comes back to his team after three days of inspection, he inspects the walls at night, by the way, because it was so dangerous. He has to go in the middle of the night to do this research because people did not like. They would, no one would have been a fan, like Sambalot and Tobiah, of someone coming to inspect the walls to begin the rebuild. No one would have been a fan of that. So he goes in the middle of the night. He comes back after three days, and he lays before his team the project, the, the, the list of what must be done. And he rallies the troops and then again, at the end of our passage, Sambalot and Tobiah, they are not happy about uh, the work that's being set out to do. And they taunt and jeer at Nehemiah and his team and his mission. And Nehemiah has some words, a uh, little, little Jesus, well, Yahweh mic drop, if you will, back at him. Uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. But that's what just happened. Nehemiah has made it. He's there. He's home. This is what he has set out to do. He's there. That is the narrative of the morning. He has scoped out the work and rallied his team in the face of the opposition. So that's what just happened. But here's what I want to do this morning. I want to walk back through the story a little bit slower with a little bit of a different lens to kind of see, if you kind of just read through the story one quick time, you go, that's, a, that's an interesting narrative. Nehemiah has now arrived at Jerusalem and he scoped out the work. But there's a few details that speak to what Nehemiah was doing, and more importantly, how he was doing it. There's a few little details in our story that really speak to us, that, that would guide us in whatever the Lord has called us to, and however the Lord has equipped us to be in this world, whatever tasks he's given us to do. Nehemiah shows us how we face what we do, how we walk into the places where God has called us. So Nehemiah's vision for his life is caught up in this vision that God has, not just for the world, but the vision that God has for Nehemiah's life and the role that he's going to play. And here's what Nehemiah is showing us. Nehemiah is showing us how to walk into the vision, into the call that God has given you for your life. And here's how Nehemiah shows us what it looks like to walk into that call, into that vision with wisdom. The first thing I want to notice about Nehemiah as he gets back to Jerusalem is his cadence. The cadence of Nehemiah, the, the pace of his heart. You may have missed it um, in, in the way that it gets described, but if you can you, use your imagination, like if you need to close your eyes, do like Nehemiah has ridden this, this with his team, with his, with his animal into, the, into Jerusalem. The, he has been waiting for this for months and then the, the trip has gotten there. It's like when you first arrive at your vacation spot, like at the lake house or at camp or at the beach, it's like, all right, look, when do we get to go like start the vacation? When do we get to go like start the task? When do we get to go start the thing that we've come here to do? Nehemiah has all this anticipation, all this buildup. He's traveled across the, no, the known world. And yet look at how Nehemiah's pace, the pace of his heart is described 
in verses 11 and 12. I don't know what slide that's on, Allie, but could you throw, would you find me verse 11 and 12, please? Got it. It says, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. Here's what, here's what Nehemiah just displayed for you. He's in Jerusalem for three days. He goes in the middle of the night, and here's what is critical for us to understand. He tells no one about it. Now, that may not shock you at first, but please understand all that he's carrying, all the weight, all the pressure, all the anxiety, all the fear, all the excitement, and he doesn't share it with anybody. He's unhurried, even though he is urgent. This ancient practice for the Christian, for the church, is called solitude. He's slow, he's thoughtful, he's intentional. The inner pace of Nehemiah's life is patient. The inner pace of Nehemiah's soul is slow. What's our pace like? Everyone I know is busy. Everyone I know is crazy busy. FYI, so is Nehemiah. So a busy schedule does not justify a busy heart. What's, what's the pace of your inner life? I'm not just talking about like screens and schedules and to-dos, which I know we all have a thousand of those. I'm talking about what's the pace of our inner life that's hurried and anxious. A pace of an inner life that may be reflected in your outside life but doesn't start on the outside of your life like how much time do you spend in between your ears worrying planning ruminating processing thinking or obsessing and maybe the number one sign of an addiction is when we try to quell our addiction with the thing that we're addicted to how well or how often have you tried to quell your restlessness by getting busier Like maybe if I just add the right things to my life, it will make me feel more rested. Maybe if I like can do the right practices and like build up my schedule a little bit more, my heart will be stilled. How often do you try to quiet the noise by turning up the pace? Maybe if I can get so busy, it will numb out all the exhaustion treadmill that I'm on in my head all the time. Maybe if I can talk to five more people about what I'm going through. Maybe if I post about it or write about it so people can see it. Maybe if I share it with these, this group of friends, maybe then I will have this inner peace and this inner rest going on. How often do you try to get peace by striving and working harder at it? See, here's what Nehemiah is displaying for us here a patient inner life, a quieted soul that is willing to be in solitude, willing to be alone, willing to be fully present with himself and with the Lord. He is in the secret place. Psalm 91.1 in the old King James version, I love it. That he who dwells in the secret place of the most high will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Like the, the, there's, this, there's this quiet place that only the Lord can get to with you, that you can only get to with the Lord, that Nehemiah is displaying for us here. In the stealth of the night, he is holding all that he has to hold. He has just traveled across the known world to rebuild the city of God. 
He has just had to ask the king his permission. He has resistance waiting for him on the home front. No one believes this job is going to happen. He has got all this expectation, all this anxiety, all this nervousness, all this excitement to be a part of something this large and this big. And what does he do? He's holding it all for the first three days alone with the Lord. Mentor of mine has begun to teach me what it means to hold that place as precious. The way we treat precious things, the way we treat things that are too, not fragile because they're poorly made, but fragile because they're so finely made. What does it look like to treat that place as precious, as sacred? That you would go, I have all this that I'm carrying and the place that I'm gonna hold that is inner, in my inner life with the Lord. Do you know that place? Do you know that pace with the Lord? Do you know the infinite stillness, like Psalm 46 from our call to worship, to be still with the Lord? Not to slow down, but to be still. Not like a rolling stop at the stop sign, which I did this morning on my way here in Sevier Park and got someone honking at me. Um, But do you know like the full stop with the Lord? Do you know the peace that is there a peace that literally cannot come by understanding your circumstances more. That's what the, the Bible talks about. There's, there's a peace that actually surpasses your ability to understand what you're walking through. A peace that comes because you are with the Lord and he is with you in your chaos. That's what Nehemiah is doing. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus goes to his best friend's house. Uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And Martha, we're told, is um, cleaning the house, playing the host, uh, setting up, serving the guest, total Enneagram too. Okay, she's like, you know, she has to help, 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 help. She's running around. And Mary, we're told, the sister, probably a four or something. Mary is, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet in the living room. And Martha, the sister, is livid at Mary. Understandably, like we all get that. Hey, we're hosting this. This is our house. I'm the one cleaning and setting up. I'm the one, I'm maybe getting into like uh, marital conversations right now. Um, they were not married, they were sisters. Um, but the, the, and, and, and Martha comes and, and she actually is so mad at Mary, she triangulates. You know this from counseling, she triangulates. She doesn't even go to Mary, she goes to Jesus. <laughs> She goes, Jesus, tell my sister to help me. Jesus is incredibly healthy emotionally. He will not triangulate. He will not go to Mary. <laughs> she, she even, she's using this whole situation actually to accuse Jesus. She says, don't you care? Do you care about me? Look at what you're letting happen here. And Jesus answers her, Martha You are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. Mary has chosen it and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus says ever so boldly that there are so many things, good things. Martha's doing nothing wrong. She's doing good things. She's sweeping, she's cleaning, she's serving. There are many things to give our time and attention and energy to. There's much to do. There is much to process There is much to be about, but here's what Jesus just said. Only one is needed, that you would sit at the feet of Jesus. 
It doesn't mean that Mary, that, that like all the responsibility for the, for the task to get done, that Martha has to do them all. He's actually inviting her in that chaotic place into the peace of sitting at his feet. And like Mary will help sweep the kitchen later. What he's saying though is, is there's one thing that's needed no matter what chaos you're in. There's one thing that's needed no matter what pressure of burden you're carrying. There's one thing that's needed no matter what you are anxious about. There's one thing that's needed. And you and Jesus may have a different priority list of what that thing is and what is truly needed like right now for the chaos that you're feeling. Is that you would sit at his feet. The Christian is the one that walks in the peace and the pace of being with the Lord in our chaos. The Christian is the one that walks in the peace and the pace of being with the Lord in our chaos. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. That, that's his cadence. That's what jumps off the page that if you understand all that's going on, that this is what he does when he first gets there. He doesn't talk to anybody about what he's doing. He holds all that with the Lord as he's surveying the work to be done. When was the last time you had something heavy, something that dominated your head and your heart space, and the only person at first that you talked to about it was the Lord? I'm not judging you if you haven't done that recently, because I have. Like, I, I, have, I have not done that well Re- recently, like as recent as two weeks ago. Like there's this anxious thing. I've got to go talk to people. I've got to go process. I've got to go think through the to-do list. I've got to go... But do you know the peace and the pace of holding those things with the Lord exclusively just for a season? Even if that season is just three days. Do you know the peace and the pace of sitting at his feet with your burdens before you bring your burdens to others? Do you know, like Nehemiah, the art of solitude with the Lord? It's not the only thing he does here, but it is the first thing that he does. But I want to see where this actually leads him. It's beautiful. Nehemiah doesn't only hold it in solitude. He doesn't stay in solitude forever. He starts with this slow cadence, this slow peace and pace of being with the Lord in his chaos. But then he goes to his community. Then he goes to his friends. And he goes to the people that are meant to carry the burden with him. Look with me again at 17 and 18. It says, is after he's been with the Lord for three days in the night in the city. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and of also of the words of the king that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. There's this pronoun shift out of this solitude with the Lord. Then he says, then I went and said to them, you see the trouble that we are in. Come let us build the wall of Jerusalem. Nehemiah started in solitude, but he didn't end in isolation. In fact, his solitude with the Lord is what led him into his community. He is not alone in his call. He is not meant to do it alone, and neither are you. He needed other people, please hear this, Nehemiah needed other people in order to accomplish what the Lord had called him to do. That's true for all of us. 
I don't know what the Lord has called you to do. I don't know if he's called you to be a teacher, a doctor, a mother, a musician. I don't know. Whatever it is that the Lord has called you to do, you are too dangerous in isolation to do those things alone. It's been said before, your own thoughts are like a bad neighborhood. Don't ever go there alone. (laughs) That a man or a woman in utter isolation is incredibly dangerous. They're they're, They're a threat to others and to themselves. Yeah, preach it. Is that an amen from a baby? You know, yeah, she knows she wouldn't make it alone. She or he, I don't know. So Nehemiah started this journey in Jerusalem with the Lord in solitude, but he doesn't stay there. He moves from his solitude and then stepped into his community. Both things are really important. This is critical to understand. Solitude and community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about this in Life Together, his kind of seminal work on Christian community. He talks about the the dangers of only having one or the other. That if you only have solitude, you will wind up in isolation and you are dangerous. But if you only have community and you have no solitude, you are also dangerous because you will bring to your community all these expectations and demands that they can't fulfill, that you can only get in solitude with the Lord. And so both paths are really dangerous. Solitude and community is what the Christian understands is needed. It's what Nehemiah is displaying. So do you have both? Do you know solitude with the Lord? Do you know how to hold the secret place of what you're carrying with Jesus at his feet? And do you know community? Do you have people that you let help carry your burdens? That you actually say, hey, I've got this that I'm holding. I've got to bring this to you because I can't carry it alone. I can't do it alone. Midtown would love to help you with both things, but let me just make a plug real quick. If you don't have or know community, we have a very simple, um, almost barrierless path for you to get into community here. We believe deeply in the formative and healing power of community. Our discipleship groups are meant to be a place where you can know others and be known by others. Our discipleship groups are meant to be a place where you can need from others and be needed by others. Our discipleship groups are a place to grow in your knowledge and affection of Jesus. And we have trained leaders that meet all over this city on just about every night of the week, except Friday and Saturday, but they meet about every night of the week um, on, on certain nights of the week in their living rooms or on their back porches. They, they, are, they are waiting for you. They would love for you to sh- sign up online and show up at their door. They would love it this week. They start this week. They start like tonight. Who, who in here is in a small group? Raise your hand. Yeah, super Christians. Who in here is not in a small group? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Down here, front row. Um, uh, but here's what, I would, here's what I would ask you. Um, Lisa Harrison, who was standing in the back, uh, she can answer any questions. I can answer any questions. Matt, Daryl, Joseph, anybody you see uh, that just raised their hand can answer questions about it. You could probably go to small group with them. If you go on our website, you can sign up. Just go to our homepage. You can sign up. You can see the map of where they all meet, what night they meet on, if it's an all-girls group or a guys group you can, or, a, or a co-ed group. You can, you can find, like it is, we are, we are trying to make this as simple as possible for you to go, hey, I'm I'm lonely. And, I, and I, I won't make it in isolation all by myself. I need other people to do this with. There's some QR codes in the back uh, on that table when you walked in. If you just want to scan, it'll take you right to the, the sign-up page for it. So what exactly, though, if he started in solitude and then came to community, what exactly did he bring to that community? 
This is really helpful for us too. What did he come to the community with? He brings the lay of the land. He brings the research. He brings the findings. Here's how this teaches us. He brings reality to them, which is exactly what we are to bring to our community. Your reality. This is where I'm at. This is what I'm holding. This is what's hard. This is what's good. This is what I'm nervous about. This is what I'm excited about. Like you are not asked to come into community and to put on some show. Nehemiah is going, hey guys, it's bad up there. We have a lot of work to do. This is our reality. Hey, community, will you help me with my reality? Because I'm struggling in my reality. I'm afraid of my reality. I got things in my reality that I don't know how to face. The walls are in ruins, people. They've been burned to the ground. The glory of the city of God is in shambles. This will be no small task, Nehemiah says to them. And this, this idea of what he brings to them, this, this counting of the cost, is so important for us. Do, do you do that? Do you take inventory of what you're walking into? Because that's wisdom. Nehemiah doesn't get to Jerusalem with all of his Enneagram 7 ness I don't know what he was, but and like not even thinking about and just let's go. Like let, let's just let's get started. Like, no, 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 no. Hey, he goes, he assesses what the damage is. He takes a real inventory of what is going on in the city. He knows what it will take. He has a plan for it. Do you take inventory of what you're walking into? Do you know the cost it will take to get married? No, you don't. You have no idea. But have you stopped and thought about that you have no idea what it will take to get married? Do you know the toll it will take on you and your soul? Do you know the cost of having kids? No, you don't. Do you know that you will want to shake a baby? Like, do you know that it will, it will drive you insane? <laughs> do you know the cost of moving to Nashville? Like, before you moved here, did you, did you count the cost of this is what it's going to take? Not just financial cost, but like social cost, spiritual cost, physical cost. Do you know the cost of going on tour if you're a musician? Do you know the, like, what it will do to you, what it will do to your family back home? Like, do you deal with reality flippantly or do you know the cost it will take to walk into something? That's what Nehemiah is showing us in a healthy way. Do you know the cost of joining a small group? Like I, I've been in a small group and led a small group basically since I, since I was a fetus, okay? But like I, I, I lead a small group here. I love my small group. Do you know that just about every week when we meet, I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know if I want to go over there tonight. I don't know. <laughs> and ask any small group leader in this room about how they feel about hosting you on Thursday night. They'll go, I don't know. And not, it's, it's not an I don't know, like I hate these people. It's an I don't know, like this will cost me something. This will take something to do. To take an inventory of the cost to walk into what you're walking into. In talking about what it will take to follow him, Jesus says this in the book of Luke. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost and whether or not he has enough to complete it? Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Jesus is just giving really like practical wisdom before you do anything, wisdom would say to you, this has a cost, are you willing to pay it? Well, I don't even know you, 
And I can tell you what's true about the things that you walk into that you say you're willing to pay the cost for. You are only willing to pay the cost for things that are worth it to you. That's why you've done anything and everything in your life. You, you could literally apply that framework to mac, micro and macro decisions that you've made. Are you willing to pay the cost? Are you willing to pay the cost? Like go out and have friends and stay up late. Are you willing to pay that cost the next morning? My granddad used to say you can dance all the night, but you got to pay the fiddler. I'm like, I don't know what parties you're at, but there are fiddlers in mine. <laughs> but like, you, like, do you know, like this has a cost to it. For some of you, and I'm, I'm not making light of this, for some of you, it was a real cost to put on a mask this morning to come in here. And you said, I'm willing to pay that cost because it's worth it to me to go do this other thing. It's certainly why you've ever like stayed with something. Like I'm willing to keep paying the cost. I'm willing to keep taking out of the account. I'm willing to like, I know this is hard. I know this is, this is like draining. I know this has like taken its toll on me, but I'm willing to stay with this because I'm willing to keep paying the cost. Nehemiah is looking at the time cost, the money cost, the labor cost, the social cost. He's looking at all of it. And he's saying, yeah, it's worth it to me to keep doing this. It's worth it to me. I'm willing to pay the cost of what it's going to take for my entire life to come and rebuild these walls. So what, what gave Nehemiah the confidence? What gave Nehemiah the willingness to pay the cost that was before him? What made it worth it to him? Why was it worth it to him to pay this cost to keep, it's going to be 12 years. Sambalot and Tobiah are going to get even worse. And it's, it's, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be really hard. What made him willing to keep paying the cost? Well, it actually says it here twice. Once in talking to his community and once in talking to the haters. He says at the very end of the passage, Two different times. He says, and I told them of the hand of my God. This is when he's talking to the Israelites. He says, I told them of the hand of my God that it had been upon me for good. And then later on at the end with Sambalot and Tobiah, when they're throwing shade at him, he says, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah was about to give a, an enormous chunk of his life away. A whole bunch of trouble and a whole bunch of heartache. And as we follow this story, you'll see at the very end, this is not a fairy tale ending. It, it's a mess. Like it does not work out the way that Nehemiah wanted it to work out. The last chapter is brutal of this book. But he was willing to pay the cost. He was willing to pay the cost even if he knew this may not turn out the way that I'm hoping it does while we're here. So why was he willing to pay the cost? Because he says it here twice. He knew that the hand of the Lord was on him for good. He knew the promises of God. He knew the blessings of God were upon him. And here's what that means. That's not a like inject some um, motivation into your 6 a.m. day, start of your day. Like the hand of God is upon me. It, it is some of that. But here's what that means for us and for Nehemiah. Here's why that matters for him. If the hand of the Lord is on you for good, if the promises of God and the blessings of God are on you, here's what that means for you. Then the ending of your story is not the ending of the story. The Lord has promised 
to work all things out for your good. The Lord has promised to work out all things for healing, for shalom. That in the end, all will be made well. Even when it doesn't feel like it now, one day, all will be restored. And if the hand of the Lord is upon you for good, if the God of heaven is going to make you prosper, like it says right here, here's what that means. Here's what that means. Like, I'm, and I'm, I'm not trying to like um, over-spiritualize this. I'm trying to spiritualize your life. Here's what that means. When you are changing a diaper, your labor is not in vain. Because you have no idea how that baby's going to turn out. It might rip your heart out in 20 years. But here's what this means. The hand of the Lord is upon you. It means that the end of your labor, the end of your sacrificing, the end of you paying the cost has an ending that will one day make the cost worth it. Not because your life is gonna look the way that you hope it does, but because the Lord has promised to restore all that the world has taken away from you. The Lord has promised to make beauty come from ashes. The Lord has promised to wipe away every tear from your eyes. The Lord has promised to make every sad thing come untrue. It means that in this futile and fickle and broken world, that when it seems like you're losing, all is not lost. Coldplay saying that 15 years ago. Just because you're losing doesn't mean you're lost. It means that when the darkness seems to be winning, there's coming a kingdom of light that will scatter the darkness away. That's what that means when Nehemiah says that. The hand of the Lord is upon me for good. And he has promised to prosper me and never leave me. And he has promised to work all this out for my good and his glory. But that's only true for you. Like Nehemiah can take that to the bank. That's only true if the Lord's on your side. That's only true if the hand of God is upon you for good. So how do you know if the hand of the Lord is upon you for good? How can you be sure that the Lord's promises are for you? It's because Jesus too counted the cost. Jesus too assessed what it would take to complete the task that was set before him. And when Jesus in the book of Luke said and asked the question, which of you desiring to build a house or a tower does not first sit down and count the cost and whether or not he has enough to complete it. When Jesus asked that to the disciples, he was not a hypocrite. Jesus knew the cost of his task. He assessed the cost of following the mission that the Lord had set before him. And I wish I could communicate to you the infinite cost that Jesus paid for you. I wish I could put into human terms the cost that Jesus had to pay. I will just say this though. Like a child that doesn't understand or think about or worry about mortgages or car payments. You have no idea the cost that Jesus paid for you. You have no clue the check he was willing to write write in order to make you his own. You don't understand it. And like a little child, it's okay that you don't fully understand it. It would be helpful to acknowledge that you don't understand it. Jesus, I have no idea the cost that you were willing to pay for me. But here's what else I know. 
we're only willing to pay the cost for things that are worth it. That's true for Jesus too. That the infinite cost that Jesus paid was not paid in bitterness, but it was paid in joy. He didn't pay it begrudgingly. He paid it and he welcomed it because it was worth it to him. Why was it worth it to Jesus? Because getting you as his own was worth it to him. We only pay the cost for things that are worth it to us. I'm willing to pay this. I'm willing to lose this. I'm willing to experience this cost and this loss if the thing on the other side of it is worth it to me. It's true for Jesus too. And when Jesus paid the cost, here's what he did for you. Here's what part of that cost being paid for you means for you. He has secured God's hand being upon you for good forever. He has forever secured the end of the story that will make all of your labor not in vain. He has forever purchased you. You now belong to him and his story is not over. And so you can pay costs right now that you don't even know how they're gonna work out. You can assess the cost and you can say, I don't know if this is gonna pay back the way that I want it to, but it's worth it to me because the end of this story will be worth it. And this Jesus who paid the cost for you, the infinite cost for you, is the same Jesus who invites you into solitude with him. That when you're in chaos, would you sit at his feet? The one who paid for you. That the Lord is on your side. So here's the invitation this morning. Here's what we're gonna do. Joseph has found a beautiful corporate confession for us to do. We're gonna... We're gonna uh, recite that together. It'll be on the screen. And we're going to confess our sin at the feet of this Jesus. And then we're going to sing before him two songs. And here's the invitation of the morning. Would you just slow your heart down this morning? Would you slow your heart down at the feet of Jesus, the one who paid a cost for you? Let's pray. Jesus, our pace, our inner pace is so hurried We need the the peace and the pace that comes from sitting at your feet. Chaos uh, awaits us out those doors. We need the inner peace, the inner unhurriedness of being at your feet. We need our community to carry our burdens with us if we're gonna walk into and pay the cost of what you've set before us to do in this city. So Jesus, who... The Jesus who paid our infinite cost, who who invites us to his feet, would you dwell with us now? Slow our own hearts down and give us the gift of being present with you, knowing that one day all of this labor will turn out for our good. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.